Well, good morning, everyone. Great, great to see you all. Here I am again. You can't get rid of me, can you? <laughs> exactly. We both came back, so it's a mutual thing. Thanks, Graham. Uh, it's really great to be with you this morning. It's a real privilege to share God's word with you. I've been praying for you. Praying for me that we'll be changed by God's word. Um, memory test. Anyone remember what I talked about last time? Of course you don't. <laughs> I don't even remember. No, that's okay. I spoke about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Remember? And so I've been preaching to you from John's Gospel, the farewell discourse, which is where Jesus, his public ministry is done, and he's with his disciples in the upper room, and he's about to be crucified. And it is the most remarkable four or five chapters you'll read. And so the first time I preached, I preached on Jesus' remarkable claim, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then last time I preached on Jesus and that outrageous thing that he did where he washed the disciples' feet, that was the thing that only Gentile slaves did. That was an outrageous act. And I want to follow on from that by preaching from John 13, 8 to around about 34, 35 as beautifully read by my darling wife. But first, I wanted to start today with a story, because everyone likes a good story, don't they? You know, a story, an old Chinese story, maybe steeped in tradition, handed down through the ages, where every word is profound, where it has a remarkable impact on people's lives. You know one of those stories? I wanted to start today with one of those stories. Unfortunately, I couldn't find one, so I made one up. And this is it. This is it. I want to tell you about a guy called Frank. Frank, Frank, all his life loved a band. And let's call that band To You. So he loved this band. Frank loved this band. He'd been brought up on it. His childhood was filled with the songs. He could sing every song by heart. And... He knew the names of the band members. He knew their wives' names. He knew their dogs' names. He loved this band. It was so, so, so important to him. It really formed the person he was today. Frank loved this band. And the band was coming to town. And Frank was telling everyone, everyone, even the uninterested people, strangers in the street, he was telling them all that he was going to see this band to you. He was telling him about this band and the profound effect it had on his life. So you can imagine his excitement. He gets in the car. It couldn't come quick enough. He drove off towards the concert venue and he parks his car. The excitement's building. He's so excited. Can you feel his excitement? Yeah, I can. So excited. So excited to see this band that he's loved all his life. And it starts raining. And that was okay because he didn't have far to walk and he had a nice cheap coat in, in, in the car, so he put it over him and he, and he hears the crowd and he walks around the corner and he sees the concert venue. Have you got it in your mind? He sees people crowding in, there's a buzz of energy. He cannot wait to get to the front door. But what he also sees when he walks around the corner is a pauper slumped in the gutter. Well, this is a bit inconvenient, isn't it? Especially for Frank. 
Frank's a Christian. Frank's been waiting to go to this band forever. He's worked so hard. He's saved so hard. He can't be late. But Frank knows that he should do something. So what's he going to do? What is Frank going to do? Loves the band. He can see the people pouring into the concert. He's got a pauper in the gutter. What's Frank going to do? Well, let's see. Let's, let's see what Frank does. So, so Frank, Frank thinks quickly because Frank knows the concert's about to start. He's been looking forward to this concert his whole life. So he thinks to himself, what can I do to make sure I get to the concert and make sure I help the pauper? What's the least I can do, the quickest, to make sure I get there? That's a good, that's a good point, Lee. He doesn't do that, though. Um, so what he does is he takes off his cheap coat and he puts it over the pauper because it's raining. He fishes around in his pocket. He gives him some change and he says, God bless you. And he rushes off to the concert. Well, that's a reasonable thing to do, surely. Frank thinks to himself. And he dined out on that, on that little story about how he helped the pauper for years and years and years. Well, I mean, after all, what was he supposed to do? Well, the concert was there. What was he going to do? So on the night before Jesus was crucified, there's a lot of shocking, shocking things happening, wasn't there? He'd already washed their feet. And then he said, as, as Debbie read, he said, someone's going to betray me. And by the way, here's a new commandment. I mean, there was a lot going on in that room. So let's pick it up again. I'll, I'll read it again because it's really important. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after this, he said, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Very truly, I, say, I, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and he said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one whom I will give the piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the dish, the, the piece of bread, then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Jesus had charge of them, Judas had charge of the money. Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Do you get what's happening here? Do you see what's happening? There's so much in this first part. I actually want to start concentrating on the second part, but I just want to whip through the first part. So Jesus starts by reassuring his disciples that he's chosen them, that he knows them. And he refers in the, to an Old Testament verse, 
which some of you will know, 41, Psalm 41.9, which says, He who shared my bread has turned against me. So he's actually referring back to the Old Testament. That prophecy was written about 500 years before Jesus said this. So remarkable. He's fulfilling that, pro- that prophecy. And he's telling his disciples that one of them is about to betray him. And if you notice in verse 19, he's saying more than, I'm just telling you what's going to happen. He's saying, I'm telling you that so that you will believe I am who I am. In other words, he's saying he's God incarnate. He said this a lot to the disciples. They haven't yet picked it up. He's saying, I'm saying this so you'll believe that I am who I am. And he also says twice in verses 20 and 21, he says, very truly I say unto you. Now, why is that different to what they used to say in the Old Testament? If you're a prophet in the Old Testament, you used to say things like, this is what the Lord said. But Jesus now is speaking under his own authority. He's God. He's God incarnate. And he's saying, I am telling you the truth. He doesn't need to go through a prophet. He's saying, I am telling you the truth. And Jesus is troubled. He's troubled in his spirit because he spent a lot of time with Judas And he knows he's about to be betrayed. So he's troubled. And of course, seeing Jesus troubled, the disciples are also troubled. They're kind of wondering, what's going on? Who? You know, they're looking around. Can you imagine the room? Can you imagine the shock in the room? They're looking around going, who's going to betray Jesus? Who is it? I hope it's not me. Then, of course, you've got Peter. He was a bit brash, wasn't he? We know Peter was a brash. And he says to the disciple leaning against Jesus, ask, ask Jesus who it is. Go on. It's kind of like a, seems to me like a classroom. You know the classrooms where you've got, you've got the kid up the back who knows what he wants to do and he knows he'll get into trouble if he does it. So he gets someone else to do it. Ever been that kid? Yep. Ever been the kid who, who was silly enough to do it and got into trouble? Yep. Or maybe some of you were just the ones who just looked on and thought, this is fun. This is just fun. So you can imagine the room, you know, Peter saying, ask him. And the disciple leans against Jesus and Jesus says some profound words. But it's actually not clear that the whole of the disciples heard what he said. Because if you read on afterwards, they're thinking, oh, Judas is just going out to get some something for the festival. So they still haven't worked it out. The disciples are still trying to figure this out. And Judas rushes off into the night to betray Jesus. So that's the lead up to what comes next, which is. The most radical thing I think ever said. He says, first I'm going to read verses 30, 31 to 34 again, just to, just to get, get us back on, on, on the focus of those three or four verses. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and he will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I now tell you. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So verses 31 and 32, Jesus 
uses the word glorified a lot. He says, I'm going to be glorified. And he says, God will also be glorified through me. So how can that happen through the death of Jesus? How's that possible? So what he's saying is, have a look at what's going to happen on the, on the cross. On the cross, Jesus reveals what God is like. On the cross, we see the mercy and love. We see the power, the grace and the justice of God. That's how God is glorified on the cross. And notice, as always, right through this discourse, Jesus is tender. He says, my children. He's talking to his disciples as a dad talks to his kids. And he says, my children, listen to me with that great tenderness that he always displays. And then he says in verse 34, I'm going to read it again because this is radical stuff. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That is a stunning command. And I hope by the time I'm finished, you'll see why. That is a stunning command. Does anyone know what Old Testament passage that Jesus might have been using as a basis for this command? This will test you. It's okay, I didn't either. Leviticus. So Jesus is actually picking up on a command in Leviticus. And I'm going to read it to you. He says, this is Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. It says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbour, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. You know that? That's from Leviticus. So it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus calls this a new commandment, but isn't it straight out of the Old Testament? You would have thought so. Because surely the notion of love was not new. After all, what's the first commandment? The notion of love is not new. Jesus talked about love right throughout his ministry. So what's new about this commandment? Why does he call it a new commandment? For the Greek scholars amongst you, of which I know there are many, Jesus is using a Greek word that means new in quality. It means superior, better to the old. So he's actually replacing the commandment in in Leviticus with a new one, a better one. So what is new about it? What's new about it? He's saying it in the context of what's just happened and what is about to happen. He's just washed the disciples' feet in an amazing act of love and, and um, self-sacrifice and humiliation in the end. And he's just about to go to the cross tomorrow. He's just about to lay down his life again in an act of humiliation. The cross was reserved for criminals. He's laying down his life. That's the new bit. That's why it's a new command. The newness is in the pattern or the model or the way that Jesus is commanding us to love. That's why it's new. See, love might have been required all the way along. But love to the degree and in the same fashion as Jesus is about to display on the cross 
is completely new. That's why it's a new commandment. You see, this commandment is new because it's not grounded in Leviticus. It's not grounded in what the Jewish tradition said. It's actually grounded in the self-sacrifice of Jesus. Quite simply, it changed the nature of love forever. That's what it did. It changed the nature of love forever. You see, Jesus is saying, as I have loved you, this is the pattern I just gave you. I've just washed the disciples' feet and I'm just about to go to the cross. In that same pattern, you must love as well. So in verse 15, just after he's washed his disciples' feet, he says, I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done. And then in verse 34, he says, Just as I've loved you, you are also to love one another. So the pattern of love that Jesus is calling us to is clear, isn't it? This is much better than and much bigger than love your neighbour as yourself. Because you think about love your neighbour as yourself, you think that's pretty good, don't you? You know, that's not a bad standard of love, surely. But you know what? When I think about loving your neighbour as yourself, I think that's pretty unextravagant. Don't you? Is there such a word? If there is, I'm using it. It's pretty unextravagant. Because our love is selfish. Our love is bounded. Our love is conditional. That's why Jesus is replacing it with a new commandment. Also pick up that this is a command. This is not just something that you might want to do if you feel like it. You know what I mean? Optional. Recommended. When you get around to it. Now this is a command. Jesus gives us a new commandment. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we often feel that love is a feeling, don't we? But you can't, you think about it, you can't command a feeling. Have you ever tried? Those of us who've got kids, remember commanding your kids. You will feel happy that you're going to eat grandma's date loaf when we see her. You will feel happy that we're going to go and see Uncle Boris, even though he smells a bit and tells the same jokes all the time, you will feel happy. You can't do it, can you? Have you ever tried to command yourself to do something? We do that all the time, don't we? I I really am going to enjoy this year three four-hour violin concert that I have to go to tonight. I will do it. I am commanding myself. Doesn't work, does it? Doesn't work. You can't command a feeling. No, see, the, the point of this is We are commanded to be loving, not to feel loving. Do you get the difference? We are commanded to be loving. Because love is an act of our will. So this command goes far beyond what we as broken humans think love is, doesn't it? So the pattern of love is clear. And the, and the third part, by this shall everyone know that you are my disciples. So what Jesus is doing here 
He's, he's doing something that's never been done in history. He's saying, I'm going to define a group of my disciples by one thing. What is that? Love. Never before in history. Don't care what race, don't care what, what colour, don't care where you come from. If you're my disciples, you are defined by the love that I'm t- talking to you about. That's it. End of story. So I've got, some, I've got some news for you. We are not defined by our church attendance. We are not defined by how much we know about the Bible. We're not defined by the number of good works we might do. We're not defined as Christians by how much money we might give. We're not defined by any of that. Jesus is saying, you are defined. People will know you because you love one another in the same way that he loves us. How radical is that? Wouldn't the world see something different if they saw us loving each other in the same self-sacrificial way that Jesus loves us? So, we're nearly there. So how does this message transform us? Because it's nice to know, but how does it transform us? Jesus is the source and the standard of love. We can't love like this on our own. We know that. Jesus is both the source and he's setting the standard of the love that we need to display as as Christians, as followers of Christ. And when we think of how Christ loves us, we cannot go past the cross. Christ loves us so much that he went to the cross. God loves us so much that he chased us down even when we were running away from him. He didn't demand that we cleaned ourselves up first. He didn't demand that we loved him first. He went to the cross despite our imperfections, despite our flaws. He went anyway. That's how he commands us to love. See, because in our human brokenness, we have limits on our love, don't we? I mean, let's be honest. Those are the people I'm going to love. I'm not going to love them. They're unlovable. That's how much I'm going to love and not a bit further. Well, they don't love me, so why should I love them? That's what our human brokenness brings out in us. Jesus is encouraging us. He's empowering us. He's setting the standard to say, no, this is how you need to love. See, Jesus never drew a line. He had no lines. He never drew a line. He never said anyone was unlovable. Anyone was beyond his reach. And you know, when you think about it, that's why he commands us to do this. Because if it was an option, what do you reckon we'd do? No worries when I feel like I could do it. Jesus commands us to this love because he knew that our tendency as broken humans is to love conditionally and to put limits on it. And he's saying, no, no, you need to love unconditionally with no limits. You see, Christ more than fulfilled that Old Testament law in Leviticus because he not only loved his neighbour as himself, he loved his neighbour more than himself. He went to the cross. He laid down his life. 
So, you'll be glad to know there's not much left. But I want to go back to my story. Because you're thinking to yourself, Chris, that was a ridiculous story. What was the point? Anyone think that? Anyone notice that I kind of just stopped? I mean, a good story doesn't just stop halfway through, does it? Surely. We've all heard bad stories. It's, you know what I mean? The wish they'd stop straight away. Exactly. So here we've got a story that I just... You thought I just got absent-minded and forgot, didn't you? I actually didn't. So here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the punchline, if you like. Here's the point of the story about Frank. Remember Frank? You, his band, to you, pauper, all of that. So here's the point of the story. Let's dare to imagine, just for a minute... What a love like Jesus is talking about would have done as it walked around the corner and saw the pauper in the gutter. That love would not have been, we've not have seen that pauper and been thinking only of itself. That love would not have seen the pauper as some sort of inconvenience, would it? That love would not have had one eye on the concert and one eye on the pauper. That love would not have been concerned about any sacrifice that they might need to make. And that love would not have consoled itself with the fact that, you know what, I gave him some money, I gave him a coat, wished him well, what more could I do? That love wouldn't have thought like that. So what would the love that Jesus calls us to, what would that love have done? You know what, I think that love would have sat down in the gutter with the pauper. I think that love would have put an arm around the pauper. I think that love would have said, I'm so glad I found you tonight. I'm so glad I found you. Don't worry. I will look after you and I will do whatever it takes to get you home. Think about it. Quite simply, that's exactly, exactly what Jesus did for us. He stooped into history. He came to live with us. We're the paupers. We're the paupers in the gutter. We're the paupers who ran away from gutter to gutter, trying to escape him, and he pursued us. We're unworthy. We're lost. And Jesus sat down and he put his arm around us. And he said, I'm so, so glad I found you here tonight. Don't worry. I will do whatever it takes, including going to the cross and dying for you to get you home. Now that pattern, that model of love is life-changing. Would you agree? It's life-changing. So my prayer for us today is that we can be so transformed by God's Holy Spirit, we cannot do this alone. 
I said before, Jesus is the source and the standard of love that we so press into God, that we're so transformed by his spirit that we can learn to love like this. Amen.